0: Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations, book recommendation episodes, and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and endorse, and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations, or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. In 2023, I am adding a new segment to my Tuesday episodes called read a Requests. Listeners can submit a book they loved and tell me why they loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads. There is a Google form included in today's show notes. I would love for you to send in a request. If you love to read, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group. To access additional content, including bonus episodes, and early reads and pre-pub author chats. For February, Lauren Willig's new book is one of my selections as well as A Likely Story, a debut by Lee Abramson. The link to join that is in the show notes as well. Today, Allison Wisdom joins me to talk about The Burning Season. Allison is a fiction writer whose work has appeared in Plowshares, Electric Literature, The Rumpus, Indiana Review, and elsewhere. A graduate of Baylor University in Waco, Texas, she also holds her MFA in fiction from Vermont College of Fine Arts. She lives in Houston, Texas, with her husband and two children. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of Seven Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm gonna take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately
0: seven minutes. And now for my read-alike request segment. I am having so much fun doing these and love hearing the feedback from requesters. Thanks to all who have submitted requests so far, I am working my way through them. While every book is unique and stands alone, certain elements of books we love really stick with us, and that is what I want to tap into. The aspects of the book that appealed to the requester and to focus on finding those elements in other books. Today's request is from Michelle of at Bookshelf by Beckwith on Instagram, and she selected Mary Jane by Jessica Anya Blau, a book about a 14-year-old girl's coming of age in 1970s Baltimore, caught between her straight-laced family and the progressive family she nannies for, who happened to be secretly hiding a famous rock star and his movie star wife for the summer. I have not read Mary Jane, But 70s music is one of my very favorites to listen to, and I love reading books set during that era. Michelle liked the book because of its 70s vibe, and she says it was a fun read with some great takeaways. My first recommendation is Songs in Ursa Major by Emma Brody, which is loosely inspired by the relationship between Joni Mitchell and James Taylor. This coming of age tale follows Jane Quinn, a talented singer, as she rockets to stardom, encountering extreme sexism in the music industry battling with wanting to stay true to herself and her music, trying to decide whether to choose love or a career, and more. Brody brings the music and culture of the 60s and 70s to life, the same thing that appealed to Michelle and Mary Jane. Songs in Ursa Major was one of my top reads of 2021. It is just an outstanding read. My next recommendation is Lady Sunshine by Amy Mason Doan. For Jackie Pierce, Everything Changed the Summer of 1979 when she spent three months of infinite freedom at her bohemian uncle's sprawling estate on the California coast. Musicians, artists, and free spirits gathered at the sandcastle for the season, in pursuit of inspiration and communal living. And that summer changed Jackie forever. Lady Sunshine also evokes the 70s era beautifully, the cultural and musical changes that were occurring and shaping the country, and how one girl's life is set on a completely different path after she spends the summer with these musicians. I think it is a great read-alike for Mary Jane. The last book I am recommending as a read-alike to Mary Jane may seem a little odd, but as the book Mary Jane progresses, the main character ultimately has a new idea about what she wants out of life and what kind of person she's going to be. Another book with music as a background and the same focus on becoming one's authentic self is The Unsinkable Greta James by Jennifer E. Smith. Following the loss of her mother, indie musician Greta James struggles with her sophomore album, dealing with fans and reevaluating her current relationship while also trying to recover from a public meltdown. The music era is later, but many of the same elements are present and it is an outstanding story as well. Before I finish, I want to mention three more books. A conversation about books set during the 70s and focusing on music is not complete without a shout out to Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. It is one of my favorite books about the era. Most people have read it, so I did not include it as one of my three recs, but it is truly a must-read if you like this time period. Another book frequently referenced about this time period is The Final Revival of Opal and Nev by Donnie Walton, which I have not read, but I wanted to make sure I mentioned it. The last book that I want to quickly give a shout-out to is The Daydreams by Laura Hankin, which comes out this coming May. It is set in a later era and focuses on a band made for a TV show, but it gave me really similar vibes to these other books focused on music, and I just adored it. Thanks, Michelle, for submitting a read-alike request, and I hope you enjoy these recommendations. And now, on to my conversation with Allison Wisdom. Welcome, Allison. How are you today? I'm great. How are you, Cindy? I'm great as well, and I'm so glad that you're going to be a guest on my podcast. We have met in person, and you have been a guest author at our salon but I'm glad we now get to talk about The Burning Season on Thoughts From a Page.
2: Yes, thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm thrilled. I thought your book was so interesting and I love the backstory behind it. So that's one of the things after we talk a little bit about the subject matter of the book that I wanna dive into. So why don't you just give me a quick synopsis of The Burning Season?
2: Yeah, so The Burning Season is about a woman named Rosemary who goes with her husband, Paul, to this super fundamentalist, little church, in air quotes, in a small town in Texas. It's kind of her last ditch attempt to save um, her crumbling marriage with her husband, who has um, one of his old friends has started this church. And so she figures if Paul's going to do it, she's going to do it. Um, And it turns out that the church has a lot more darkness in it that maybe even Rosemary has in herself. Um, And so it's a lot about trying to reconcile what you believe and what you want to believe and basically what you will give up and sacrifice in order to make relationships work. And a lot about Rosemary finding her identity and kind of reclaiming her
0: autonomy. So I can't wait to talk about this again, but how did you come up with the subject matter for this one?
2: So weirdly, um, when I went to college, there were, there was this guy, okay, you know, when you are like a freshman in college and you're just like, I will hang out with literally anyone (laughs) so that I'm not hanging out by myself. And you kind of find yourself in this like big random friend group before everyone kind of finds their real friends. So this guy was in our big random friend group and, He eventually drifted out of the friend group. But years later, someone reached out to me and was like, hey, do you remember this guy? And they sent me this Texas Monthly article about him. And he had started, again, I'm putting in air quotes, a church (laughs) in a small town in Texas. And this church is 100% super culty. And yeah, they just went into this little town in Texas and kind of bought it up they're very like isolationist and very super fundamentalist and i was just so floored by the idea that someone who was like so close to me not like relationally but proximity <laughs> and friend group would be able to start something like this and that there were people who are my age who were joining it just blew my mind and i started writing about a woman who I thought might find herself there.
0: It must be so wild and not a great way, I guess, to realize you knew somebody who has now started a cult.
2: Yes, so wild. And uh, I mean, I am very interested in cults. And so (laughs) I was like, wow, this is perfect for me personally, (laughs) but since I'm not involved in it. But yeah, it's It's definitely... The community is troubling and dangerous, I think. <laughs> Not like they're going to go blow something up, but just for the people who are involved in it, it's you know so damaging, I think, to people who are trying to figure out you know how to live their lives and what they believe in.
0: Well, and this is a very different cult from the Branch Davidians. But with this being an anniversary of all of that, there are a number of books coming out related to that. And it just always makes me think Texas and cult. And think, okay, what is the deal with Texas and their cults?
2: Yes. Okay. So I've thought the same thing. And I think part of it is that Texas is so its own thing. Like, no one tells us what to do. We are our own little country. We are our own little world. It's filled with people who are like not contrary or stubborn, but also kind of those things like, well, you can't tell me not to do this thing. And also, I do think just like logistically, Texas is huge (laughs) and there's a lot more open land than there are in other places. But it is really interesting. Like, I think that's a great place. You're going to start a compound (laughs) or something. There's a lot of land. And then, of course, too, you know, there's the religious current that runs through the state kind of as a whole that lends itself to, I think, extreme forms of belief.
0: I think the religion and the large amounts of space are definitely two of the big contributors because you can go truly into the middle of nowhere and mm-hmm. operate, you know, what whatever you want to do because there's just so much space and then yes, there is definitely religion is a big thing here. And so I think the combination of the two. I just always think these cults are so crazy because they take religion to the nth degree and really become not about religion at all but instead about the leader and his followers and you know what that leader wants to accomplish. But it, it, they definitely use the guise of religion.
2: Yes, for sure, and I think that's you know for me the most troubling aspect, and also like so heartbreaking because you see it not just in I think what we think of as cults, but even in like you know mega churches, for example. Like if you were ever following like on Twitter, there's you know you can get into the little different circles of things, and there's you know like Christian Twitter (laughs) and. It's so interesting watching like the difference. it's like every week there's a different mega church pastor that is in hot water. And it's so just like, yeah, it's just humans are too weak for that. <laughs> you know? It's just the desire to have like power and control is just so great. I think that it's like, you know, maybe humans aren't meant to be in charge of <laughs> large groups of people in that way. But yeah, it's so interesting. And I think one of the things that really has drawn me to like religious cults in particular is that I grew up in a religious household and I'm still a Christian today. And it's like looking at, looking at a place like, you know, the cult that inspired my novel is like looking in like a fun house mirror where it's like you can tell what you're looking at, but it's distorted enough to be like disturbing. And you're like, well, I can see some similarities, but oh, it's not the same thing. But yeah, it's, I, it's been very, you know, humbling for me to think about.
0: Well, and I was curious as I was reading your second book, and I had read your first, and they both deal with cults or some form of cult type behavior. What is it that is so intriguing to you about cults? And obviously, we've talked a little bit about it. And it isn't just you. I mean, people love reading about cults.
2: So I think it's partly the same reason why like horror movies are popular. I think it's you are able to see something from a safe distance that is otherwise like troubling and scary. I think particularly because you always think, well, that would not be me. I would not get sucked into this cult. I could not get brainwashed. And like really the truth is that. I think we're all so much closer <laughs> to that than we want to admit that we are because what cults really speak to is like a desire for belonging, a desire for answers and for um you know somebody to be like okay, I see you in your struggle and why don't you just let me take care of that for you. And then that is really seductive to have the promise that someone could make that better. And I think about my own life. And there have definitely been times where, man, I would have been so much more susceptible to someone offering me that that I was at other points in my life. And so I think it, you know, cults speak to a very tender human part of us that we don't always like to acknowledge is there. And so I think the appeal of cult narratives is like, okay, I'm kind of getting to indulge that a little bit, safely behind the pages of this book or my couch at home or whatever it is. And so, yeah, I think it's just, yeah, it's just interesting and it's so human. And I think, you know, we're, we're drawn to things that are in
0: some ways a spectacle, which a cult can be. And I think humans want to understand. So I think they want to look at something like that, that is so hard to understand and think, okay, like How can I understand what's happening here? How can I make sense of it? How can I make sure this doesn't happen to me?
2: Yes, exactly. I think that's so true. And also, just, you know, an understanding for the way the world works. And so, I think that, you know, that's why people end up in real real life cults is okay, well, these people have got some answers. Supposedly, I might as well just give it a shot. (laughs)
0: And I think you're right that there can be times in your life when you are much more susceptible to that. When everything's going well, life is good, you're going to just brush it off. But if you really do get down or you've been hit by a variety of things, you can see where it would be easier to think, oh, maybe I could use some help here. And if this person says they have the answers, then maybe I should try that. Nothing else has worked. Yes. You also weave in fire, which is another topic that I think fascinates people. And Pregnancy and women and childbearing, and what can happen to women when they can't get pregnant or they're made to feel that that's the only thing they are important for and on the planet for?
2: Yeah, I, my oldest child is about to turn eight. And so, since really since I was pregnant with her, the idea of motherhood has just completely consumed me, both like in a literal physical way and that my, that's my life all day, every day, but also just like, you know, what it means and what it's like to be a mother or a woman of childbearing age here in America and in Texas. After my first baby, I could not get pregnant again. And so I was writing The Burning Season and thinking about it at a time when I was really struggling with my fertility and just the idea like that there's something about your body that's not working right. I remember reading Hunger by Roxane Gay and she's talking about having an unruly body. And in her situation, it's obviously about weight and mine is a little bit different, but it did feel the same way. Like my body is not doing what it's supposed to do or what society is saying it needs to do. And it was really such a consuming thought for me and you know people are so well meaning and everyone had different advice well maybe you should do whole 30 maybe you should try acupuncture maybe you should like do um, some kind of like weird aromatherapy thing and i was like oh, i'm just <laughs> so exhausted by the thought of it and it's like well what if i just what if i just didn't want to have a baby and you know i obviously did i was going to a lot of trouble to have one but i was just thinking about how hard it is to be a woman and it's just kind of a damned if you do damned if you don't like there's just one right way to be a mom and then oh you don't want to be a mom well then maybe there's something unruly about you as well and so when I was thinking about rosemary I wanted to kind of pay tribute to the fact that that it's just it's not for everyone and that's okay (laughs) those women should be celebrated as well
0: Absolutely. I think there are several things about what you're talking about that are important. One, that some women don't want to be moms at all and that there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And that society, well-meaning or otherwise, is kind of constantly pushing that. And it's uncomfortable for women who are like, I don't want to be a mom. And then the next is, you may be a mom of one child and you may only want to be a mom of one child or two children or whatever the number is that is your own number. I think once you have one child, everybody starts immediately asking you, when are you going to have the next one? How many are you going to have? Some of these questions that really are more personal than sometimes people are treating them.
2: Yes, definitely. And I think, you know, like in, in Rosemary's community, the Church of Dawes, like it's childbirth and motherhood is such an essential part of what they believe, like that you are doing. Uh, what your body was meant to do by becoming a mom. And so it's very like just a nature of a cult. And in some ways, you know, that closeness is a real gift. And in other ways, it is very destructive. And in Rosemary's case, you know, it's a very insidious intentions and interest in someone's like body and what they're doing with it in regards to having kids or not.
0: And having control over it or absolutely no control over it. Yes, exactly. Well, how about point of view? How did you decide who would tell the story and how you would tell it?
2: So it was always Rosemary's voice. Kind of the way that I work when I'm writing is I write first by instincts, And then after I feel I've given it a little bit of time, I go back through and I interrogate those instincts. Why did this feel right to me? And so for Rosemary, it felt very apt for her to be, it came to me as first person, like, okay, so why am I in Rosemary's head? Well, it's her story more than anyone else's, which is different than We Can Only Save Ourselves, my first novel where there's a chorus of voices. And in Rosemary's, like, she is in a very claustrophobic situation, and she is trapped. And so, to me, a first person point of view, like you are stuck in Rosemary's head for good or for bad. (laughs) And I wanted the reader to feel the same way that Rosemary felt, which is that, you know, this is all you have is her insight and her perspective. You're not getting anyone else's perspective. Everything is filtered through her, and you don't get access to another voice. You are deducing things the same way that she is. And so, yeah, it felt important to me to kind of keep
0: that um, really insular. Was that hard? Since it was different than we can only save ourselves,
2: it was hard in a different way. Definitely, with the burning season, it feels more personal to me in a way than we can only save ourselves. The the point of view and we can only save ourselves is a natural remove, I think, for me as the writer. Uh, whereas the burning season. And so much of it is I am not Rosemary for sure, but she also is not not me. <laughs> like when my parents read it, they were like, Oh, this is like uncomfortable for us because so much of her sounds like you. And I was like, Sorry, don't worry. Bad <laughs> things that she does are not the same bad things I've done in my life. So
0: You're like, I forgot to tell you all about this cult I joined.
2: Yes. Well, actually someone had mentioned to my parents, they had like heard about the book. Oh no, they'd read it. And he was like, wow, I would really love to talk to Allison about all of the things that she's experienced. She's really had a long road. And my dad was like, oh no, 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 no. (laughs) Totally made up.
0: (laughs) Okay. That is hilarious. You've got people out there attributing all sorts of activity to you.
2: Yes, I know. I'm not nearly as interesting.
0: (laughs) In a good way. In a good way,
2: yes. Yes. (laughs) Euphemistic.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, what surprised you the most when writing The Burning Season?
2: I would say what surprised me the most was, honestly, the plot (laughs) and kind of the character of Rosemary and her effect on the plot. Because with We Can Only Save Ourselves, it's such a different book and there is a plot in it. But I feel like with each book that I'm writing, I'm understanding more about the mechanics of plot, which sounds so silly because how can you have a book without a plot? But man, is it so much harder to do than you think it is. I really let myself be surprised at the, at the way things went. Like I wasn't totally just writing by the seat of my pants, but I did let myself be open to things being a surprise different choices that Rosemary made. The ending in particular, like I waffled back and forth about what I wanted to do. And finally, when I got it and it felt right, that did feel surprising to me, but it like
0: in a a really good way. Well, back to the plot and how hard it is to come up with one. People ask me all the time if I'm in a right and I'm like, no, like that seems so incredibly hard to me. I'm always so impressed with any of you. Who can get a story on the page, write dialogue, write plot, write from whatever point of view. All of that seems very difficult to me.
2: Yes, it is. And, uh, you know, I always felt like, well, I've read a lot of books. I could maybe do it. And then I started actually writing and I was like, okay, so I can write a really nice sentence. But what I can't do is like write a plot like a real, real dense, deep plot. It felt, because to me, I'm like, oh, well, you're having a conversation. That's plot. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, well, not really. So yeah, that has definitely been one thing for me that I've really struggled trying to like make things happen. Why is that so hard? Make characters do something. That's so hard.
0: <laughs> I think it would be so hard. I totally get that. I think it would be very daunting.
2: Yes, that was Rosemary's problem with the the first draft I wrote of this book. I was like, oh, she's not, she doesn't do anything. (laughs) And I was like, well, she can't do anything. She's in a fundamentalist cult. And I I was like, well, that makes a really bad book. (laughs) So I had to figure out a way to make her more dynamic. And actually something that really helped me was realizing that Rosemary was a, a gymnast growing up, that was like a huge thing for me that kind of cracked open her character. And I was like, Oh, I can so much more envision now things that she can do and will do based on knowing this about her personality.
0: And that's something you have some knowledge about.
2: Uh, The gymnastics? Yes. Yes. My daughter is a competitive gymnast. And yeah, it is. She got like you know recruited to a little pre-team when she was 4 and so she got you know plucked out of a bunch of little girls in a preschool class and we got put on this track and it's i mean talk about like <laughs> finding yourself in a cult by accident i was like wow this is the world of gymnastics is very rigid and it's very insular you're practicing so much like she is not quite 8 yet she goes to the gym like 10 or 11 hours a week and it's and as a parent you're also up there and you know going to meets and organizing things and it's just so like such its own little world and it made sense to me that rosemary would end up being a gymnast because when you're a gymnast you're listening all the time to your coach there is this singular voice that you are listening to and they are demanding as close to perfection as you can possibly be. And without that voice, I think like when when Rosemary in the book quits gymnastics, she's looking for something to fill that, that she's missed. You know, the community from gymnastics, a sense of purpose, like this very rigid discipline. And so she's more amenable <laughs> to finding herself in a place like Dawes than someone who does
0: not have that same background. She goes from one insular community to another. Exactly. Back to knowing a cult member and getting your inspiration from his cult. What did you have to do when you were writing to make sure you weren't going to trigger anything from that group since they are alive and kicking and operating?
2: Well, for one thing, I don't think they're very engaged like with the world. You know what I mean? Like I... The world to them is like just this terrible, depraved place. They, When they join, they like are basically saying goodbye to their families, any life they had outside of the church before they came to the community. So I would be so interested to hear if anyone had ever if they ever found out about it, but I just think that the odds are pretty low. Cause I mean, I assume they're not like reading books or, or, you know, that's books that aren't the Bible, I guess. But yeah, I, I did like want to be sure that I was not just making it 100% clearly about them. And it got a lot easier once I got into the book and I kind of was able to make up my own thing. A little bit. Some of their key things are the same, but they're kind of the the Church of Dawes is kind of an amalgamation of churches that I've heard of, churches that I've attended, all the all the problematic churches.
0: And cults. You know, I grew up watching that documentary about Jim Jones um, down in Guyana. I mean, I must have seen it a hundred times because obviously TV was so different when I was young and you didn't have 8 million places to go. And there were the four channels and they pretty much ran the same things over and over. And so I just was so completely intrigued and fascinated and horrified by everything that happened down there. And I think those things do really leave marks on you.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, my... Okay, so have you read The Road to Jonestown?
0: I haven't. And I was just sitting here thinking, okay, it was Jonestown, but I can't remember the name of the group off the top of my head. What was the, yeah, the people's temple? That's what it was. I had a temple in my head, the people's temple. No, but I have read a lot about everything there, news articles. I've seen that one documentary from the you know seventies yeah. or whatever, eighties, a thousand times, but no, I have not, but I should, because as an adult, because I only remember everything that I watched about it from when I was a teenager.
2: Yeah, it is. So it's really good. It's a great book. It is so, so hard to read. I read it when I was like newly pregnant with my, with my son who that we we could not get pregnant for so long. And I happened to be reading it like when I found out I was pregnant and I was like, I should probably just stop reading this. It is so deeply upsetting, (laughs) but it's so, yeah, it was so interesting. And the book is so well-written and so well-researched. But yeah, I mean, that kind of thing, like, it leaves a huge scar, I think, on the whole country. But like, in the book, I think it's in Road to Jonestown, they're talking about how, you know, in in Northern California, where uh, the People's Temple was before they went down to Guyana, like, there are so many people who are still, you know, their relatives were in People's Temple or they knew people who were. And it's just like, you know, psychically scarred their their community. And they talked about how like, it's so offensive to hear people say like, don't drink the Kool-Aid. And like, yeah, those things really leave these indelible marks, not just on, I think, individual people who were affected by it, but like
0: everyone. <laughs> I think that's right. Because certainly those that were affected by it or were there, it leaves the harshest marks on. But I mean, I still feel like it's one of those things that I just won't ever not think about. And there was a song that came out, Guyana Punch. Did you ever hear that? I don't think so. Which was all about, it's like a punk band or some kind of pop, you know, small pop band. And they had a song that was on the radio about it. And at the time, I didn't think so much about it. But as I get older, I think, okay, that's terrible. Like, who thought that was a good idea? And, you know, how did it run on the radio? So yes, I just think um, I'm sure that community probably doesn't want to hear one single word about Jim Jones or Mm Kool-Aid.
2: Yeah, it's, yeah, that that one in particular is just such a gut punch. It's just unbelievable.
0: (laughs) Yes, definitely. And The Branch Davidians as well. And I really would like to pick up one of these David Koresh books, or one of, I think there's a book called Waco that's just come out. I would really like to read one of those because- I'm not as familiar with the Branch Davidians, but obviously it happened in Texas and I remember when it happened.
2: Yes. Yeah. And um, I went to Baylor. And so when I went to Baylor, it was before like, you know, Magnolia Market and Chip and Joanna and before like the football scandals and everything else. And people were like, oh, Waco, <laughs> the Branch Davidians. <laughs> it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. And, You know, you can still go out there. It's not actually like in Waco. It's like 15 minutes outside of Waco. We were always like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not in Waco exactly. But you can still go out there to like where it was. And there's like a little visitor center. And there are still people who are practicing out there the same things that David Koresh was teaching, which is
0: fascinating (laughs) to me. I agree. And I did not know that. Yes, I knew Waco. And it's interesting because I do think Chip and Joanna have changed the focus in a good way off of Waco from Branch Davidians to now Magnolia. But it's just interesting that those things really do stick with people and why other news cycle items come and go. And you think, oh, I remember that. I think these type of things really stick with people a lot longer.
2: Yes, for sure. And I think, you know, when there's also like Photographs. I mean, I that I remember my mom telling me. I can't remember how this even came up in conversation, but like a long time ago about Jonestown, and she was like, "I can remember seeing the pictures and like seeing them on the news and on magazine covers, and how like that has stayed with her for so long. It's things that are just so shocking. And I think the same thing too about the Branch Davidians. You know, (laughs) uh, televised in so many ways and how, yeah, that just, it definitely shapes a place. And that is true of Waco for sure.
0: Yes. No, I agree with that completely. And I think you're right, photos and videos, because it really does become kind of branded in your brain.
2: Yes. uh Uh-huh. It becomes a part of a place's mythology too. uh, You know, like Waco, I feel between that and Baylor, there's like a, you know, a weird religious undercurrent kind of... (laughs) that goes through the city. And yeah, it's, it's very interesting.
0: It is. One of my very favorite bookstores, Fabled is there.
2: Yeah. So I
0: always enjoy going to Waco to visit them.
2: Yes. I just got to go um, for the first time to Fabled recently. And it's so beautiful. And I mean, I wish it was there when I was at Baylor, but it's, yeah, it's really great. It's a beautiful store and super nice people who work
0: there. Really fun. I agree. Well, before we wrap up, what books have you read that you recommend?
2: Um, So the last book I read of 2022 was Small Game by Blair Braverman. Have you read that? I have. I loved it. I love Blair Braverman. I was introduced to her through the You're Wrong About podcast with Sarah Marshall. And she has an episode about the plane crash in the Andes, the rugby players. It, I think it's called Miracle in the Andes. If anyone is listening to this podcast, when you're finished with this one, go find that episode of You're Wrong About. It is so good. And I was so excited after hearing this episode to read a small game and I, I loved it. I thought it was like so beautiful and so interesting and so like hopeful and sad. It was, made me feel all the things. Then I'm currently reading The Villa by Rachel Hawkins, which so far I'm not finished yet, but it's super fun. I love books about big old creepy houses. I love them. I will read every single one that is given to me. I aspire to writing a book someday about a big old creepy house. And if you uh, already read The Villa, which I think just came out last week, but you're looking for another kind of like... Part of the book is in the like late 60s, like folk music scene Wilding Hall by Elizabeth Hand also fits some of those boxes. So if you're looking for a big creepy house, same sort of vibe, check out Wilding Hall. And then I am very excited for Madalena and the Dark by Julia Fine um, to come out later this year, this summer, I believe. So those are the books that I've recently finished and one that is on my radar that I cannot wait to read. And what else has Julia Fine written? She wrote her debut as What Should Be Wild. Okay. Her sophomore novel is The Upstairs House, which is about a new mom being haunted by the ghost of Margaret Wise Brown.
0: Oh, how entertaining. Okay, I'm going to have to look for that one. Oh,
2: my gosh. It is so, so good. Julia is so talented and brilliant. And yeah, The Upstairs House is scary and also like as a mom who had postpartum issues it is so like on the nose i mean it's like right up there if i were you i'd read it paired with night bitch by rachel yoder
0: for just a back to back
2: haunting motherhood <laughs> sort of stories
0: for some happy reads
2: <laughs> yes yeah, some happy uplifting reading
0: <laughs> oh, I have to wait on those for just a tiny bit but <laughs> yeah <laughs> well Allison thank you so much for joining me today on the thoughts from a page podcast and I can't wait for those that haven't read the burning season yet to read it
2: thank you so much it's so fun
0: don't you know that you're